Good evening and welcome back to our pastor's class here at Hickory Grove. It's a joy to have you join us as we continue our study that we began just a couple weeks ago through Paul's letter to the church at Philippi. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to open with me to Philippians and we're still in the first chapter. Philippians 1, this evening we'll begin in the 12th verse. Now as you're turning there, just a little word of context to help you kind of get a grip on where we are in this letter. Paul wrote this letter back to a church he had founded many years ago. And in these first 11 verses that we've covered, what we see Paul doing is basically thanking God for them, just rejoicing, praising God for the grace and kindness he's observed through the sanctification and ministry of these dear new brothers and sisters in Christ in Philippi. He's thanked the Lord for them. And now, beginning in verse 12, he, he shifts gears just a bit, and he begins to give... Well, it's, it's kind of like a ministry update. He starts to tell these believers about where he is, what's going on, and he makes a defense. He, he makes a defense of how God is moving in his life despite, well, you're going to see it in a moment, what's presently happening in Paul's life does not lead most to think, wow, what a measure of grace. Indeed, you're going to look at what's happening to Paul and think, dear mercy, I mean, that sounds like he has had one tough time. It's hard to think positively about it. So Paul's positive tone, despite all the circumstances he's under, should stun us a bit. So let's just turn our attention now to the 12th verse of Philippians 1. And what I'd like to do is read down through verse 18. And we'll unpack verses 12 through 18 just over the next few minutes or so. And by God's grace, you will see the secret to Paul's positive attitude in verses 12 through 18. Let's begin in verse 12. Paul writes, I want you to know, brothers, that what's happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel, and the former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. So what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Would you join me as we pray? Father, I ask now that you would come and you would minister your word to your people. And would you use me, use me in spite of me, I pray, as a means to that end. In Jesus' name I ask this. Amen. You know, a life of joy, of enduring joy, it's, for lack of a better word, revolutionary. And the reason I use such a strong word as revolutionary is because a life of joy is not natural to anybody. We, as fallen men and women, as sinners, we are naturally inclined to center our lives around that which does not bring lasting, enduring joy. We are naturally prone to center our lives around those things that don't make this recipe of joy despite circumstances that we found in verses 12 through 18. 
You see, what we need as fallen men and women is we need what happened about 500 some odd years ago in the field of science. So 500 or so years ago, there was a prevailing theory amongst many that the earth and indeed the solar system revolved around the earth. So there was this belief that the sun revolved around the earth and everything else revolved around it. It was an earth-centered model until a young scientist named Nicholas Copernicus in the early 1500s, he theorized and his theory ended up becoming substantiated. It's now the prevailing uh, understanding of the day. He proposed that the sun was indeed the center of the universe. He produced this mighty paradigm shift in science away from an earth-centered worldview to a sun-centered, a heliocentric-centered worldview. It was a revolution often called the Copernican Revolution where now all of science shifted from viewing the earth as centered to the sun as centered. So too we need a Copernican revolution in our hearts. A, a revolution away from a Kyler-centered, a man-centered worldview to a God-centered one. We need to open our eyes and see that all of reality does not revolve around us. It revolves around another, a one worthy of all glory, honor, and praise, a God-centered, indeed a gospel-centered worldview. And that's what the Apostle Paul had discovered. You see, the secret to Paul's enduring joy in the face of all these circumstances was that Paul had a life and mind and heart centered around something other than himself. Indeed, I, I want to frame it like this. When, as we think about the secret to Paul's joy-centered life, I want you to understand that a joy-centered life is a gospel centered life. You could say that a joy-centered life is a God-centered life. The, the secret to Paul's joy was that Paul's life, mind, heart, will, emotions had become centered around the gospel of Jesus, and the gospel became that which determined all other things in his life. He was most passionate about it. And what I want you to see in this text is I want you to see three ways that a joy-centered life is a gospel-centered life. Three ways a gospel-centered life makes it possible for you to have a joy-centered life. So if you're taking notes, mark these down. Number one, a gospel-centered life sees pain as providential. It, it sees pain not as something that is all-consuming, not as something that is all-determining, not as something that is to be avoided at any and all costs, not as something that should be interpreted as God turning his face away, not as something to be interpreted as God being indifferent. It is seen as a divine providential act of God. Don't take my word for it. Look with me, if you will, at verse 12. Paul says, I want you to know, brothers. Now that phrase, I want you to know, means pay attention. What I'm about to say is important. That what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. In other words, Paul's saying, everything that's happened to me over these last 10 years or so has served to make this gospel go forward. Now, what has happened to Paul over the last 10 years? Remember the context. 
The Apostle Paul, having planted these churches in his uh, three missionary journeys, upon the conclusion of his third missionary journey, he is uh, arrested after a riot breaks out in Jerusalem. He ends up being imprisoned for a couple years. After this long imprisonment, he appeals to Caesar. Uh, he is sent to Rome to bring his appeal to Caesar while on this voyage across the Mediterranean Sea to Rome. He shipwrecks on Malta. He eventually makes it to Rome. We see this in Acts 27 and 28. And in the last chapter of the book of Acts, we see the Apostle Paul is in house arrest where he pins these epistles, these prison epistles, one of which is the book of Philippians. He writes these letters to these churches he had founded while imprisoned, having been beaten, shipwrecked. The guy had been through a lot. All of these terrible things that had happened to him, Paul tells us in verse 12, they really served to advance the gospel so that it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. So I want you to notice Paul's perspective here. Paul recognized, thanks to the work God had done in his heart, that God uses all things, including difficult, hard providences in our life, difficult circumstances, indeed suffering itself. Paul uses, uh, the, the Lord rather, uses these very things for his glory and for our good. The Apostle Paul recognized quickly that God was using all of these terrible things in his life, not only to sanctify Paul, but to advance the gospel of Jesus. And he gives us one illustration. While imprisoned in Rome, Paul would have been shackled. And the way the shackling would have worked is there was a, there was a shackle around his wrist and about 18 inches of chain, and he would have been shackled to a soldier. You see right here the imperial guard. Now that guard, that praetorium, that guard, that was the elite soldiers of Rome. There was about 9,000 of them or so. They were hand-picked, originally instituted by Caesar Augustus. And, and these men were the elite. These men were the cream of the crop. They were the ones that Caesar, the, the emperor of the Roman Empire, he would have dedicated these men for these great tasks like guarding an important prisoner. Paul was shackled to these uh, men, and he would have been shackled to a man 24 hours a day. And of course, those men would have gone through shifts. And notice, Paul's shackled 18 inches from these guys. And within these 18 inches, Paul starts to evangelize them. He starts to bring forth the gospel of Jesus to them. And he discovers that this very burden, this suffering he's going through, is actually being used to evangelize the Roman guard. It was making its way up the household to Caesar. He was getting into the heart of the Roman Empire thanks to his suffering. Moreover, Paul alludes that the rest of his people uh, that knew about his imprisonment were being edified, built up, and encouraged by the very fact that Paul was seeing his pain as providential, as divinely ordained by God. You see, his circumstances had become an opportunity, divinely appointed as an opportunity for him to share Christ. I want you to take a step back with me and just reckon with the biblical reality that God uses pain in a providential way. This is the lesson Joseph learned after being treated horribly by his, by his brothers, being falsely accused by the Egyptian leader Potiphar. Joseph, after a long life, speaks to his brothers in 
Genesis 50 and says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. This is the lesson that Job had learned after succumbing to horrible, horrible judgments in the first chapter of the book of Job. And then he stands and looks God in the face and says, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. But blessed be the name of the Lord. Because Job was learning, indeed Job knew in part, that God is a God who providentially uses pain. This is something we see evidenced in Jesus himself and and attested to by the apostles. For in the book of Acts chapter 2, we see the apostle Peter declare in this sermon to all these uh, these Jews that had killed Jesus. The apostle Peter says, this Jesus was who was delivered up according to God's definite plan, you crucified. So in other words, Peter is saying, you did an evil act, but God in his sovereign grace and mercy and wisdom and inscrutable will, he made this happen a part of his definite plan. In other words, God was orchestrating even the most horrific example of pain for his glory and for our good. And so just rest in assurance that whatever trial you are presently going through, whatever burden you are bearing, whatever pain you acutely feel right now, take it to the bank. God is using this pain in a providential way in your life. There is no school like the school of suffering. And so if you can grapple with that, if you can grip it, if you can rest in that, if you can lay your head on that pillow, you will discover the secret to joy that the Apostle Paul discovered. You will have a joy-centered life, for a joy-centered life is a gospel-centered life, and a gospel-centered life sees pain as providential. That's number one, but let's continue now because we haven't adequately looked at verse 14. There's a second thing I want you to see. Number two, a gospel-centered life, moreover, is one that sees fear as unfounded. Look with me, if you will, at verse 14. Paul continues, And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, they're much more bold to speak the word without fear. So Paul's adding another reason why his imprisonment is doing good for the gospel. The Apostle Paul adds that not only am I having an opportunity to evangelize the Roman Imperial Guard, not only am I having all these opportunities to see the gospel advance, my very witness as one who is suffering well, my very witness as one who is trusting that my pain is providential, that very witness is emboldening fellow brothers and sisters in Christ to go and speak this gospel in such a way that they can do so without fear. You see, what the Apostle Paul was doing is he was reckoning with the fact that God is so sovereign, that God is so in control, that God is almighty, that he need not fear, that he need not worry about what men could do to him. You see, Paul had taken to heart one of the Psalms that I have struggled with more than any other throughout my life. I, I distinctly remember in 2001, it's, it's funny that I remember this, I remember reading this psalm, I, I presume for the first time, at least intentionally, in 2001, and I've never forgotten it. The 56th psalm, beginning in verse 3, where it says, When I am afraid, I will trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I will trust and I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? 
not I'm not one naturally prone towards fear. I'm not a typical worrier, a fearful individual. But I've also not had a whole lot of opposition. I've not had a lot of darts thrown at me. I've just not gone through as much as many others have. I haven't been prone to this measure of fear. And so when I've confronted with that text, I thought, man, what would I do when the time comes that I would rightly, naturally, normally fear man? Is my mind and heart going to be centered on the glory of God such that I can, with full assurance of faith, say, when I am afraid, O God, I will trust in you. And God, whose word I praise, and God I trust, I won't be afraid. What can man do to me? Could I say that? The Apostle Paul evidently learned that. He learned how to look men in the eye and say, I need not fear you. He learned to fear him who is able to throw the body into hell, God himself. He was not afraid of man. He learned that his fears are unfounded. Now we can praise God for the grace of this faith that is that comes about by the ministry of the Holy Spirit working within our lives. We can praise God for the grace that we see evidenced in the Apostle Paul. For here's how it works. When God saves you, he changes you. And when God changes you, he changes the way you see things. It's like he gives you new eyes. You who were once blind, you now see. And as you continue to grow in his grace, as you continue to strengthen your grip on his grace, as you found your life on the gospel of Jesus, you will begin to see all those things that once caused your knees to shake, that once caused your legs to buckle. You will now see those things differently. Slowly but surely, you'll begin to see things differently. Now, why? Why do you see those differently? Is it just like kind of a miracle? Well, I, I think one of the reasons you start to see those things differently is because everything about your life is being reoriented. Let's go back to that revolution we began with, that Copernican revolution of sorts. Your life was formerly in your natural flesh centered on you. You had this earth-centered view of things. You were totally fixated on yourself. Until God came and changed you, he, he brought about, he wrought a revolution within you, and now the center of your universe is God and His glory. And when God and His glory becomes the center of your universe, things begin to change. All the things of this earth begin to grow strangely dim, as the old hymn says. You begin to see things in the light of His glory and grace. And that light is a different light. And all of a sudden, Things that once consumed you with fear and anxiety and anguish, they begin to lessen. Now, not instantly overnight for most, but they begin to lessen. And you begin to grow in boldness. And as you grow in boldness, fear of man begins to flee away. Now, this is a fight. This is a battle. Believe me. The Christian faith is described as the fight of faith. So you're going to have to wield the spirit, the sword of the spirit daily. You're going to have to pray fervently and say, Oh God, would you help me to reflect verse 14 of Philippians 1, that I might be among those who are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Do this work, I pray, in my heart, O oh God. By God's grace, he did that in the Apostle Paul's heart because the Apostle Paul learned that a joy-centered life is a gospel-centered life. And a gospel-centered life is not only one that sees pain as providential. A gospel-centered life is one that sees fear as unfounded. That's the second thing I want you to notice. May I turn your attention to one third and final truth we see in this text, beginning in verse 15 
Moving all the way to verse 18, number three, third and finally, a gospel-centered life sees esteem, you could think of like self-esteem, esteem as expendable. In other words, a gospel-centered life sees self, all the worth and, and approval and applause you long and crave for, as something completely unnecessary, dispensable, expendable. And look with me, if you will, at verse 15. Paul says, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. You see, the latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel, and the former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. So the Apostle Paul is saying there's two types of believers, and you've got to notice he's inferring that both of these groups are believers here. There are two types of gospel-believing, gospel-proclaiming people, and one have sincere goodwill in their ministry, and some have been tainted by the flesh. Some are doing this ministry out of envy, rivalry, selfish ambition, the Apostle Paul says. In other words, Paul is realizing that our flesh even as converted followers of Christ, our flesh is such that we naturally fall into that old selfish ways. We naturally fall into envy, and envy being you not wanting somebody else to get an advantage. It doesn't even necessarily mean you want the same advantage they have. In this context, the word envy is you purposely don't want somebody else to succeed. So the Apostle Paul says there are evidently, in his day and time, other gospel-proclaiming preachers who were preaching the gospel of Jesus and yet wanted the Apostle Paul to get knocked down a rung or two. They wanted the Apostle Paul not to have the worldly glory that he had evidently received for being, well, my word, he's the Apostle Paul. He was the sharp end of the spear of the gospel as it was going forth through uh, the Western world. And they wanted a little glory for themselves. Now, notice, the Apostle Paul could have stopped there, and we would have all agreed that that is wrong, sinful, ought to be repented of. And the Apostle Paul could have just had righteous indignation, full stop. But do you notice what the Apostle Paul says in verse 18? It's fairly stunning. For in verse 18, he says, well, what then? Now, I would fill in the blank, call those men to repent. But the Apostle Paul says something different. He says, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. You see, the Apostle Paul was so consumed with the glory of God that his very esteem became expendable. His very approval, that natural desire any person born of Adam has, that natural desire to be affirmed, it was dispensable to him because he had become consumed with the gospel ministry. He had become consumed with the glory of God. He had learned in truth the 115th Psalm, verse 1, Not to us, O God, not to us, but to your name be the glory. The Apostle Paul wanted God's glory so bad that he was willing to be maligned, to be misrepresented, to be the object of envy and scorn. And he even says the object of selfish ambition. He was willing to be on the other end, the receiving end of that, as long as the gospel of Jesus was going forth. Now, this is admittedly a difficult text. It's hard to even reckon with a true gospel preacher blatantly living this way, but you know, experience tells you that that is terribly common, unfortunately. 
And the Apostle Paul said, I want the gospel of Jesus to go forth. I want people to taste and see that God is good. And so I am willing to lay aside all self-respect so that God gets the glory that is due his name. You see, the Apostle Paul had a Copernican revolution. He who was once at the center now beheld Christ at the center. And as a result of this gospel-centered life, this life that saw pain as providential, this life that saw fear as unfounded, indeed this life that saw his very esteem as expendable, that gospel-centered life yielded a joy-centered life, one in which the Apostle Paul could say with integrity, in verse 18, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Paul had joy unspeakable, enduring joy, thanks to a life transformed by the gospel of Jesus. And I invite you to plead, as I plead for my own soul, that God would do that Copernican revolution of sorts in your heart so that you would no longer be at the center, but God and his glory. And when you do that, for when you do, you will taste and see a life centered on joy unexplainable. Would you join me as we pray to that end? Father in heaven, I ask that you would do just that. Move in the hearts of those who have heard your word such that our lives might be centered on joy in you. We know this is only possible, Lord, if our minds, hearts are centered on the gospel of Jesus. So do it so that we see pain as providential, fear as unfounded, and esteem, self-esteem as expendable for the sake of your name. In Jesus' name we ask this. Amen.